Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto. Today I'm joined by my good friend, colleague, overall sage of all things medical, epidemiological, and botanical, uh, Fahad Razak. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> it's good. Don't forget partner in life. I'm also uh-huh. your partner in life. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yes. And also my wife. Okay. Awkward. But, Keep you going. know, fortunately, she never listens to this, so yeah, we can be honest. Okay. Um, so, Fahad, you and I are going to talk about two papers today. We're going to talk about uh, variations in treatment and outcomes for extremely preterm infants. Uh, and then we're going to talk about a study of an electronic alert system to identify acute kidney injury in hospitalized patients. Of course, as always, we'll end the podcast with our Good Stuff segment, where we bring short and sweet recommendations to you from uh, the broader world of medicine. And materials can be found online at healthydebate.ca. You can subscribe to us in iTunes, and please subscribe, leave a comment, leave a rating. Uh, It really helps us out. All right, Fahad, kick us off. Tell me about variation in treatment and outcomes for extremely preterm, extremely preterm infants. Extremely preterm infants, that's right. Yeah, extremely is not a word. That's right. Um, Okay, so I'm going to talk about an article that was just published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's by Rasavi and colleagues, and it's uh, based in the United States, and it looks at variability in offering life-sustaining therapy for extremely preterm births, so births that are between 22 to 26 weeks gestational age. And the major finding is that there was an enormous amount of variation between hospitals in whether care was offered, and this seemed to account for about 80% of survival of these extremely preterm infants, especially the ones that were the most preterm, so at 22 to 23 weeks. So that's kind of interesting, Fahad. This is, I would argue, somewhat outside of uh, our area of expertise as uh, people who predominantly look after uh, the elderly. So why did you pick this study? So I think the thing that was the most striking to me was the large degree of variability. Uh, Practicing in adult medicine, of course, we don't have to deal with uh, preterm infants or their enormous care burden. Uh, but, you know, we, we do deal with adults who are very sick, and I feel like a lot of that, a lot of their care is quite standardized now. It was quite surprising that there was this enormous degree of variability. Okay, so tell me, uh, how did they conduct this study? Where was it done? What kind of data did they use? So let me start with the background for why they did this study. So the decision to either initiate or to forego potentially life-saving treatment in infants who are extremely preterm or near the limit of viability, so that's about 22 weeks, that's an extremely difficult decision. And in some cases, the infant is clearly too immature for treatment to be effective. Uh, but in other, And in other cases, the treatment is clearly indicated, but a lot of cases fall in that gray area in the middle. And so the decision to offer active interventional therapy for infants before 22 weeks gestational age is generally now not recommended. And what societies recommend, what the obstetrics gynecology societies recommend is that for infants born after 22 weeks, that this be a decision between the parents and the provider. And when this decision is made, a lot of it depends on how families are offered counseling about whether uh, life-sustaining therapy is uh, beneficial to the infant, what kind of outcomes that they would that they would expect for the infant, and especially people are worried about whether there's going to be severe neurologic damage to the infant. 
Um, and when uh, physicians, when hospitals provide this sort of evidence to families, it's often based on available data. But available data is actually quite variable. So studies that are quoted suggest that survival ranges anywhere between 1 to 52%, so an enormous amount of variability. And so these investigators tried to provide population-level representative data for actually what kind of survival could be expected and what, uh, and what sort of neurologic impairment could be expected. Okay, that's interesting. Strikes me as like obviously really important to help inform those critical life and death decisions, right? So where do they get this population level data? This study was conducted in the United States. They used 24 hospitals that care for severely preterm infants, and they examined about 5,000 births. And these infants were between 22 to 26 weeks gestational age. And they defined active life-sustaining treatment as a range of things, and that included uh, treatments such as surfactant therapy, intubation, or other forms of invasive ventilatory support, um, the use of epinephrine or chest compressions. Okay, so what did they find? So what they found is that, first of all, there was a lot of variability in uh, whether life-sustaining therapy was offered. So among uh, infants that were born at 22 weeks of gestation of 22 weeks of gestational age only about 20% of them were offered life sustaining therapy and this rose to about 100% being offered at 26 weeks gestational age and they also found that survival varied markedly with gestational age so for children born for infants born at 22 weeks gestational age only about 5% survived Whereas for children born at 26 weeks gestational age, about 80% survived. So there are these dramatic variations, um, particularly between 26 weeks to 22 weeks. Within the extremely preterm, which strikes me as sort of that gray zone, right? The 22 to 24 or 25 weeks. That's right. That's exactly right. Where is that variation occurring? So you're, you talk about how, you know, it's really a, a variation in the decision that's being made between individual physicians and their patients. Um, and you could imagine, I guess, that that variation might exist at the level of individual patients. So patient level characteristics would drive the variation. Certainly, I would expect culture to, to drive that variation, which I guess would parse out either at the hospital level or possibly even the regional level, right? Like whether they're a state or jurisdictional, uh, either legislative or social attitudes that vary. So where, where's the variation happening? And were they able to tell that? Yeah, so I think the broader points that you're raising about culture, legislation, etc., I think those are really interesting. That would probably require um, at least a multi-state, if not a multi-country kind of analysis. What they did find is that institutional culture and approaches to life-sustaining therapy did vary enormously, and especially among the most severely preterm infants, so those born at 22 weeks. So what they found was that between hospital variation in offering active treatment varied from about 8% to 100% at 22 weeks gestational age. But by the time you got to 24 weeks gestational age, the variability was only 95 to 100%. And when I say variability, I mean the interquartile range. So from the 25th percentile of hospitals to the 75th percentile of hospitals. In other words, there was almost no variability in hospitals by 24 weeks, but there was enormous variability at 22 weeks. And this is in offering uh, life-sustaining therapies? That's in rates of offering life-sustaining therapies, correct. Okay. And what about outcomes? So the outcomes varied also enormously. So um, what they found is that hospital rates of uh, the hospital rate of active treatment accounted for about 80% 
of the variation in survival of infants. So I guess it's not surprising. I mean, these are not really like viable, uh, you know, uh, infants without significantly inter- invent- intensive interventions, right? Well, okay, yeah. So that's an important point. So essentially no infants survived if they weren't offered active treatment. So that's the first takeaway. So these these are extremely preterm infants. They will not survive without, without active therapy. However, about 80% of the variation in survival of infants was driven by hospital-level practices, especially at infants at 22 to 23 weeks of gestation age. So in other words, yes, a hospital has to, a hospital or a physician has to offer life-sustaining therapy, but there's enormous variability between hospitals for very similar patients in whether this treatment is offered at all. Sure. And so that's sort of survival, but what about, I guess, maybe an even more important metric, which is sort of survival without significant neurological disability. Yeah, so they prov- in this paper, they provide parallel sets of statistics for both survival and survival without severe neurologic impairment, and they largely mirror each other. So that 80% of variance that I'm, uh, I, that I'm describing for survival, that also is approximately the variance that's accounted for for survival without severe neurologic impairment. Okay, anything else you want to talk about about the paper? Uh, no, I think those are the major findings, and I would say that the thing that's most striking is the degree of variation between hospitals and whether active treatment is offered at all. Even among the most severe presentations, among the most preterm infants, that actually there isn't a lot of standardization of care, even in a high-income country like the United States. Yeah, and so do they talk a little bit about those sort of social and maybe political legal factors that might be influencing this, or were they unable to comment on that? Well, they raise an interesting. They raise an interesting possibility of a self self fulfilling prognosis, and by that they mean that uh, in hospitals that quote statistics that suggest that survival is low, active treatment is less likely to be offered, and then survival is low because sure. active treatment is the only thing that enhances survival, and so you can have a, a loop that forms where hospitals that make recommendations then fulfill the outcome of those recommendations or fulfill the fact that there's very low survival. And it really points to the fact that you need this kind of broad population level representative data to really figure out what's happening. Okay, so what do you think is the major takeaway from this study? So the major takeaway is that among severely preterm infants, offering life-sustaining therapy does make a big difference on whether these infants survive and whether they survive without severe neurologic impairment. Importantly, it also demonstrates that there's enormous variability between hospitals and whether this therapy is offered. And it raises the possibility that this kind of variability could exist for a lot of other life-sustaining therapies, invasive or intensive procedures. And it's a question that we should examine both in infants, but also in in our adult populations. Okay, great. And just to sort of close the book on this conversation, what was the overall rates of survival that they recommended quoting for patients at these different degrees of really severe uh, preterm birth? Yeah, so the survival ranged enormously. It was extremely low for those born at 22 weeks, only about 5% survival rate, whereas it was over 80% among those among those born at 26 weeks gestational age. And given the variability, how do you use this data to counsel patients? So I think, I mean, I will, I obviously I uh, will never be in the position of counseling patients about this, neither will you. But I think the, the point is, is that hospitals shouldn't use their own survival statistics because their own survival statistics are probably biased by their own practice patterns. Uh, this represents a broader evidence base to recommend 
uh, intervention or non-intervention to parents. This is certainly not about the morality of offering intervention, but it does provide reliable statistics. Great. Okay. Thanks so much. Let's uh, switch gears. So I want to talk about an article published by Wilson and colleagues in The Lancet about developing an electronic alert system to identify patients with acute kidney injury. So this was a single center randomized control trial at the University of Pennsylvania, which showed that the implementation of an electronic alert system to identify patients with acute kidney injury and inform their care providers did not actually improve patient outcomes. So why did they do this trial in the first place? So the rationale that they provided for this study is that acute kidney injury affects almost 10% of hospitalized patients. It's under-recognized, and studies have shown that when acute kidney injury is under-recognized or poorly documented by clinicians, it's associated with increased mortality. Their, their argument is also that there's no current evidence about whether an early alert system could improve outcomes for patients with acute kidney injury. And these early alert systems using electronic medical records are gaining increasing implementation in a variety of fields. Okay, so what do they actually test in this? Yeah, so they developed an EMR system that identified patients with an acute increase in their creatinine, and they used... a standardized definition of acute kidney injury provided by the Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes Group, um, which is effectively about a doubling of creatinine in seven days. You know, there was a few different details, but that's effectively uh, one of the key metrics that they were using. This was all at a single hospital at the University of Pennsylvania. And what happened was that patients who were captured by this tool, this electronic tool, were then either randomly assigned to usual care or an automatic messaging alert to the patient's care team, including their uh, physician and uh, the unit pharmacist, to basically say this patient has acute kidney injury. For control patients, there was no alert sent. And then the primary outcome was looking at a composite of death, dialysis, or maximal change in creatinine over seven days. Okay, that sounds like uh, reasonably important clinical criteria. What did they find? Yeah, so uh, they studied 2,400 patients, 1,200 in each group. About 40% of the patients were admitted to a surgical service. 30% were in the intensive care unit at randomization, and about 45% were on a medicine ward. And they found really uh, no difference between the groups at seven days. So they found, this is really interesting actually, that the median change in creatinins, so when they looked at how the creatinine changed in these patients, it was basically 0% in both groups, suggesting that basically on average, the trigger creatinine for enrolling the patient was like the highest creatinine for that patient. Um, In terms of dialysis rates, they found that between 6 and 7% of patients received dialysis in both groups. And in terms of mortality, between 5 and 6% of patients died, uh, again, with no difference between uh, groups at 7 days. Furthermore, there were no differences at either 14 days or 30 days. There were no differences based on whether the patient was in the intensive care unit or not, or whether the patient was a surgical versus medical patient. 
So explain to me what a median change of zero creatinine means. Does that mean that for all patients, there was overall no change during hospitalization? That sounds surprising. So what they did was looked at after enrollment in the study, the, mac the next maximal creatinine, right, compared to the enrollment creatinine. Okay. And on, on average, that was 0%, suggesting that for most patients, their creatinine improved either spontaneously or with some intervention, almost immediately after being enrolled in the study. Oh, I guess this makes sense. So on presentation, the creatinine could already be elevated. Yeah, so on presentation, the creatinine had to be doubled from a previous baseline to suggest that the patient had acute kidney injury. And then the subsequent creatinine measurement was compared to that enrollment creatinine. Right, that makes sense. And I guess the other surprising finding, if you asked me, Ahead of time, where I thought this intervention could potentially be the most important, I would say, on a surgical floor where these uh, injuries to the kidney are perhaps often missed. Not to reveal your bias as an internist who believes we provide superior care to anyone where, else in hospitals. Where's Nathan when we need him? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll get his comment on this soon enough. No, I, I mean, I, I suspect that that was one of the reasons why they looked at that subpopulation independently. Interestingly, there was some differences between surgical groups versus medical groups of patients, um, and not in a positive way. So they found that in the surgical wards, patients who were in the intervention group who had this alert received an increased rate of uh, nephrology consultation. So about 11% got a consultation with the renal service versus 5%. And they also had increased rates of dialysis, about 6% versus 3%, and yet their outcomes were not improved. And in fact, there may have been a slight trend even towards increased mortality in those patients. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, those findings are meant to be interpreted um, with some caution and, and felt to be hypothesis generating because they're findings from multiple subgroup analyses. And, you know, obviously there's a risk of them just being chance findings alone. But nevertheless... Um, there are at least provocative questions. Right. So uh, what is your takeaway from this? And I, and, and I want to layer on a question of why do you think this got published in The Lancet? And, and it's not that I'm unhappy with The Lancet publishing negative trials. I think that's important. But I don't even see this as being a particularly compelling intervention. And then it has a negative finding. So why do you think this is in The Lancet? Yeah. So let me lay out, I think, what was my instinctive critique so, you know, this is a single center uh, study of an electronic intervention that's not particularly intensive, and then it ends up being a negative study. So why does it get published in one of the world's leading journals, and why are we talking about it today? So I think for a couple of reasons. The first is these electronic alerts are increasingly being integrated into decision support tools and electronic medical records around the world. Uh, and it's really important that we are thoughtful about the use of these tools and evaluate these tools rigorously. And certainly this was a rigorous analysis, right, of this, of this tool. The accompanying editorial makes a comment, which I wonder may have led to the increased impact of this study and its timeliness. So in England, there's a recent national patient safety alert by the NHS which has mandated the use of a detection algorithm for acute kidney injury in laboratory information systems across the country. And this directive 
mandates that clinicians should be notified about acute kidney injury detection. It doesn't talk about the method of notifying clinicians or the time frame, so it's you know really just a high-level mandate. Uh, but I think this study provides, therefore, some important empirical evidence about informing maybe how that that practice could happen. One of the other you know points that could be made is that this was a study really in the inpatient setting where you already have a lot of eyes on patients at any given time, uh, whereas perhaps in an outpatient setting, this might be a more impactful intervention. I think that's totally fair. I was going to say the other thing that I think hampers this sort of intervention is the inpatient setting. So that's exactly right. One of the things that we do check daily is, in fact, blood work. And this is something that is often flagged without the need of an added intervention. Many EMRs will change the color of the lab value to red when it's abnormal, et cetera. So there are ways already in place that this is flagged. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's interesting, like, why why didn't this work? So you highlight a good point. Like, another point is that ba- similarly, it's just if baseline levels of care are, are very good, then you're not going to have a particularly impactful intervention. There's also the possibility that this definition of acute kidney injury was too sensitive. I mean, most of these patients subsequently had a normalization of their creatinine very quickly, right? Um, So maybe we're not actually picking up the patients who need greater attention. There's the possibility that greater intervention maybe leads to more harm than benefit, which I think is provocative and raises important questions in an era where less is more is a very trendy philosophy. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, except for the pact about, except for the point about sensitivity. I mean, I think generally, epidemiologic principles would suggest that a fine uh, a definition which is extremely sensitive would be easier to pick up, um, and so that doesn't really explain what happened here. Um, you know, the for example, if you used a, a more severe definition of kidney injury, let's say a creatinine that is three to four times as high, that. I would that I think you would logic would suggest that that would be almost always picked up by the clinician without requiring a trigger tool. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think the other important point about this is so this is effect. This is an early report system, um, but with no real subsequent follow up with the clinician, no real guidance on improving the management of these patients. Um, So I think that's important uh, in terms of, you know, the actual intervention itself being a relatively unintervention,al intervention. Right. Okay, great. So what is your main takeaway from this? Yeah, I think the major takeaway from this is that this randomized controlled study did not show a meaningful benefit of an electronic alert system for acute kidney injury in hospitalized patients, which suggests that as electronic tools are being rolled out increasingly, uh, because they're relatively easy to implement, we need to be very wary of ensuring that they're actually affecting patients' clinical outcomes. Uh, And this suggests a certain degree of prudence uh, as we move forward in this information and digital age of uh, healthcare provision. Okay, great. Thanks, Samal. Okay, let us move on to our good stuff segment, Fahad. So tell me what caught your eye from the world of medicine this week. So what I found totally fascinating was an article in the New York Times about a retraction that's probably forthcoming for uh, an article that was published in Science in December. And it was based on uh, a quite impressive finding. So the finding was that 
when they had sent canvassers into the community to try and persuade people about whether same-sex marriage was acceptable or not, the sexual preference of the canvasser ended up making an enormous difference about whether people were persuaded. So they found that gay canvassers were much more likely to be able to persuade people to accept same-sex marriage than straight canvassers. And it was a, a large uh, and significant finding. The effects seemed to persist over weeks to months. And this had a lot of implications for how we generally try to convince people of any view, let it be anything from public health to political views. Now, what's really interesting is that it looks like this article is going to be withdrawn. Um, the senior author of the article has written science to ask for the study to be taken down. Science's editor has also commented that they're actively investigating it and are highly suspicious that the article was actually completely fabricated, including both the data, the funding sources, and the analysis. And why I find this, this uh, example really interesting is that what happened in this uh, article could happen, I think, in many research labs. This is an example of a graduate student who said that he had conducted this research. He then analyzed the data and provided results to his supervisor. That pattern is done all over the world. And I would say, based on my experience, both in Toronto and Boston, this is the kind of model, this is the kind of model of analysis and interaction between graduate students and supervisors that exists everywhere. And what this raises is what degree of oversight is actually required by a supervisor to catch fabricated data or fabricated results. And I think it leaves a lot of us uneasy in the scientific community because what was the the deception that was uh, pulled off in this uh, in this study could happen anywhere to any of us. Great recommendation. Thanks, Fahad. I want to uh, speak a little bit about what I'm calling a curated autobiography uh, that was written by uh, the recently uh, deceased uh, Professor David Sackett. So as I'm sure most of our listeners know, uh, David Sackett is a giant of uh, uh, Canadian and global uh, medicine, really one of the fathers of uh, evidence-based medicine, or as he called it, critical appraisal. And he compiled in the last you know, several months of his life answers to questions that various reporters have asked him over time and used it to put together what effectively becomes this, you know, a hundred page document that serves almost as an autobiography. And it's fun, it's funny, it's thoughtful. And I want to just take one minute to remark on one aspect of uh, Dr. Sackett's life that I find completely mind mind boggling and uh, also really inspiring. So at the age of 49, he's a professor at McMaster University. He's at the peak of his academic productivity. He's like a world-renowned researcher, trialist, has founded Critical Appraisal. And he decides at that time that his clinical skills are slipping. So he decides to go back and do residency again. He does a two-year residency of rotations with supervision. He gets a recertification from the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. I just can't even imagine the personality, the humility, uh, the courage that's required for someone at that stage in their career to sort of return to the most junior level of training. Yeah, it's it's completely amazing. I mean, I there is a 
there's many um, obituaries that have been written about uh, about Dr. Sackett after he died, and and I would point listeners to the one in the Globe and Mail, which I think is one of the best by Andre Picard. Yeah, if that's not the best example of sort of lifelong learning uh, in medicine, I, I don't know what is. Okay, thanks, Fahad. Let's uh, do this again soon. Great to be with you, Mark. Good to be back. Okay. Talk to you.